You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. If you like this show, and we hope you do, you should check out Slate's Culture Gabfest. The Gabfest is a weekly show featuring culture critics Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, and Julia Turner. Tune in to hear them analyze all the latest cultural happenings from highbrow to pop and everything in between. You'll hear about what's new and noteworthy in film, television, music, and art, as well as healthy debates about all the stories that are currently blowing up your social feeds. New York Times critic Dwight Garner says, The Slate Culture Gabfest is one of the highlights of my week. Search for Culture Gabfest wherever you get your podcasts. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise and the MCU, including Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Media Podcast, where we dive deep... It's your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. On this week's episode, we're going into space. It's Guardians of the Galaxy, baby. In previously on, we're going to be recapping and reflecting on the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise thus far and getting you up to speed on where all your favorite characters are. In the airlock, we're going to be talking Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, go and see it and then listen to this episode. And in Nerd Out, there's going to be a relevantly spacey theory about Star Wars from listener Tony. I love it. Coming up, previously on. First up in the previously on, we will be looking back at the first two installments in the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise in the MCU to get you up to speed for Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and also a check-in on where the characters from the Guardians team ended up after the various tie-ins that they appear in. Mostly What's Endgame. they been up to? Yeah, mostly Endgame, some Thor, Love and Thunder, and also, of course, the Christmas special. The Shall cheeky we begin? holiday special. Let's do it. Let's do it. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 introduced us to the, at the time, extremely deep-cut titular team. It was a bombastic space adventure. That's right. There was 80s music listened to by the hero Star-Lord, who was kidnapped as a child by space pirates known as the Ravengers. And was raised by their leader, Yondu. You may remember him. As an adult, he's a quick-talking thief with quips for days. And on a routine mission to steal a valuable artifact known as the Orb, he becomes entangled with Gamora, the daughter of the tyrant Thanos. Remember him? Remember him? Important in the MCU? When she is sent after him by a violent Kree alien known as Ronan the Accuser. Lee Pace! In the MCU! Still doing shocking. Great, doing fantastic things, Lee Thespianing. Pace. He's thespianing. Gamora and Quilla soon waylaid by bounty hunters. Groot, a talking tree, and Rocket Raccoon, a gun-toting raccoon. But in the end, they have to come together to save Gamora from another strange alien known as Drax the Destroyer, who wants to kill her because his family was killed by Ronan the Accuser. Now we should Pause. add there's some some interesting some interesting some dynamics. interesting context for our for uh, our Ronan the Accuser on the Ooh, rewatch. Yes. So Ronan, 
um, is a member of the Cree race uh, as an accuser, an important figure in the judicial process, but has broken off from the Cree because they signed a peace treaty that he doesn't like. And so he's decide, he's taken this job to get a certain orb that contains a certain gem <gasps> for one Thanos because Thanos has been collecting those things. Big time collector. He wants all the gems, as we all remember, the Infinity Stones. Loves those gems. He's tasked Ronan with doing it, but Ronan has taken the gig, but also he wants to keep the stone so that he can blow up the treaty and decimate Xandar, the planet with which the Kree have signed a treaty with. Yeah, and he ha- he wants to put the stone on his super cool hammer. That's right. And make a super powered hammer. Jason, do you remember the first time watching this movie? Because I, I feel do. like I feel like as MCU fans, the first time watching Guardians of the Galaxy was just kind of a mind blowing experience. It was. I. It was that that stage in the evolution of the MCU where I'm like, I can't believe they're doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the real, f- obviously, putting. All the Avengers together in a team was a pretty big swing. Creating a uh, a shared universe is a big swing. Mm-hmm. But this is the real heat check movie where, you know, the big criticism of the MCU at launch was like, nobody cares about Captain America. Nobody cares about Iron Man. Yeah. Nobody cares about the Hulk. And that was true. And let me tell you, nobody really, really, really nobody gave a shit about the Guardians of the Galaxy. And this is, I mean, they're fun. If you are a true like Marvel comics, Marvel cosmic comics nerd, if you're this digging isn't even in the, ori- the back issue bins, digging in the back issue, and this is not like even them. the original team. This Mm-mm. is like the the team that emerges after uh, uh, annihilation. Yeah, at, after a bunch of cosmic uh, Marvel crossovers, and it really felt like God. I don't know if people will like this. It'll be crazy if people like this, and they and it was fun, really super fun movie. Obviously, I think the music has become mm-hmm. a hallmark of the series, and, and continues with Guardians of the Galaxy three. Some really they've expanded past the eighties. They were there into the nineties and the two thousands now. Uh, in Guardians three, that's a little bit of a spoiler, but uh, just super fun. I, I really enjoyed it. What, what was? Do you yeah. remember what your thoughts were when you first I saw it? I saw it at like a midnight screening. I think or a very late night screening at the IMAX in London, which at the time I think was one of the biggest screens in the world. And I remember that opening so well with, you know, Peter, he's going through space and he's listening to his headphones and he's yeah. kind of like kicking little lizards. I really came out of it like, wow, they they Star Wars the MCU and like what I felt it like was a very enjoyable way. And this was pre-sequel trilogy, right? So it felt very different. I mean... It's wild to think this was only the fourth film in phase two of the MCU. So it's like so you say, wild. it was just a total tone shift. I think obviously like exploded James Gunn into the stratosphere and yeah, made the music and needle drops such a huge part of the MCU, which hadn't really been a thing before because it was such a score-based, cinematic, operatic, serious take on the franchise. Whereas this was much more pop culture reference heavy. You had Peter who grew up in the 80s. So he had these memories of an earth that had never been updated, which allowed for a lot of fun nostalgia. It was just a totally different vibe for the MCU. Let me ask you this. So watching, rewatching this, 
it struck me that we don't know how a lot of the gems ended up where they are. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we just, uh, Peter is tasked by the broker who is just, just a guy with a storefront and a brick just and mortar shop on Zed. <laughs> Literally <laughs> just a guy with a jewelry store. <laughs> He's like, it would be cool to have an orb. Yeah, I'd like an orb. Say, Will you go get the orb for me? Um, and we never really find out how it got there. It would be so cool to find out at a, at some point in the mm-hmm. future how all the Infinity Gems got to the places where they eventually got picked up at. I would love that. I think that could actually be something really cool to do in the animated stuff because yeah. they do. there is a great bit of exposition we get in this movie that kind of is the next part. The, the team, they team up together sort of unexpectedly, this ragtag alliance of convenience. And then another one of my favorite big swing weird moments from this movie we head to nowhere, which is a floating outpost of kind of like ravagers and bad guys and anti-heroes and space yeah. pirates. Just kind of an open city in space inside sea. the head of a celestial. Casually. Yeah. Just, a, just a floating celestial head. So note that, Eternals lovers, because you're hearing the word celestial for the first time here. And celestials actually end up playing a large part in the ongoing Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. And they end up going to The Collector, played by Benicio Del Toro, who's so great in this movie. Really just creepy so creepy and weird. And he's so weird and he's so over the top and he is even more of a fan of collecting things than Thanos. And he does that great, one of my favorite MCU exposition dumps where he explains the histories of the Infinity right. Gems and how they were created. But that's it. You get the millennia-year-old history and then they're just here. I feel like, let's explore that. I would absolutely love to know what have they been up to who had him before we know it wasn't adam warlock like in the comics yeah how did it end up on morag mm-hmm. who had it what were they doing with it who put it in this nice little orb so yeah they they go and see the collector and we get a very good info dump we learn about the power gem it's very powerful give you almost infinite powers and if you have them all then of course we know you can snap out half of the universe spoiler alert that happened they got a battle ronan ronan wants the power gem for himself but he's also consistently snitching to thanos about the guardians so thanos kind of has a good idea of what's going on they ultimately head back to xandar as you mentioned where a lot of people thought they were going to see nathan fillion as nova it didn't happen but we did get to see the nova corpse in one of the epic things falling out of the sky third act battles in Marvel history. It's still one of the most impressive ones. Uh, Yeah. I have a, I have a note for all supervillains. Obviously pointedly Ronan, the accuser in Guardians of the Galaxy, (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy volume one, but also general Zod in man of steel. If you're going to destroy a planet, go anywhere and destroy it you don't don't go to like the capital city where all the military forces are like make it do it eat i i understand like this was an act of hubris by ronan he wanted to like make a big speech before he did all the shit but like go to some go to the middle of the fucking ocean and destroy mm-hmm. it Take some notes from the Death Star. Destroy it from far away. Yeah, destroy I know you it from got, far you got away. the power stone. You can do something. <laughs> you don't need to get like, you, on you the ground. You don't need to be on the planet. Yeah, and then you ultimately, anywhere. you know, get beaten in a dance battle with Peter Quill, a very famous MCU moment. 
And this is honestly a mistake that a lot of supervillains make. Mephisto has done this. Mm-hmm. You know, Namor has done it. They always invade, like, New York City. It's like the Avengers, the X-Men, everybody lives here. They live there, bro. <laughs> like, please <laughs> go it's, somewhere in the, out is, the middle of nowhere and destroy it's the physical. It's definitely the physical version of monologuing. Yeah. It's like, don't tell somebody your plan before you've enacted it. And don't go to... The central city, especially here where, as we see, there are like thousands of Nova Court ships. Like, (laughs) this is like a heavily defended place. Yes. And, of course, you know, spoiler alert, but it is an MCU movie and it's not Infinity War. The Guardians come out on top. And as the movie comes... A little dance battle. We get a little little fun dance battle. Which is one of, again, these are those hallmarks. It's interesting because it's so sincere... It really and is. And stylized. I don't know if it's full camp, but there are definitely campier elements to this movie than a lot of the MCU movies. Having a dance battle, this kind of ongoing joke about the headphones, the tapes, the music, Peter's nostalgia, his ship is called the Milano. Though, I will say, on merchandise, including the recent Lego release, they call it the Guardian ship. So I wonder if Alyssa Milano sent them a little letter. <laughs> well, I will say that Ronan... I mean, Lee, Lee Pace is straight up oh, camp in this movie. Oh, yeah, he knows. Straight, Lee, Lee Pace mean, knew what every, he was doing. Every, every line reading is just so insane. What are you doing when they, they start He's dead, chewing every piece of scenery oh, my God. with his full six and a half foot stature and his thespian training. Lovely Pace. Still blows my mind every day when I think that he was in the MCU. And this is just Zander, such a. Fun- you stand accused. Your wretched peace treaty will not save you. It will be the tinder on which you burn. <laughs> and he's wearing like a dramatic, glamorous hood. And he's got a giant hammer. He's really doing the most in a delightful fashion. Yeah. And as the movie comes to an end, we learn an important plot point for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. That Yondu didn't just kidnap Peter for no reason. It was not random. He didn't just kidnap there It was not a mistaken identity, yeah, yeah. which I think was kind of the vibe that Peter had been told. In fact, the night Peter's mother died of a, of a brain tumor and Peter ran out and was so upset, he was kidnapped by Yondu because Yondu had been hired by Peter's mysterious father, who happened to be a powerful deity. And Peter now learns this shocking fact, and we head into the wilds of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I mean, this movie made so much money for the movie. It was like $773 million worldwide. And you know, the the moment when Groot creates the Groot ball to save everybody, it still gets me. It's and it's so beautiful in there with the little flowers and his his I think they've made him, like, meaner ever since he mm-hmm. would, he got reduced to a twig. Like, he had this very placid and gentle yeah. look in his eyes in the first movie. And, and it's, you know, when they're sitting there inside the group ball and Rocket is like, but you'll die, you know, don't do this. And it's like, and you just look at Groot's face and he's so at peace with it. Mm-hmm. It really is just like a wonderful moment. You know what? I think I'm so glad you brought that up because that actually is such a vital part of why I think these films have become so popular. It is this bombastic, silly, camp, colorful adventure, much like the old space adventure serial kind of stuff. But it has a very effective emotional heart 
And that is a lot of that comes from Groot, from Rocket, from the relationships mm-hmm. of this found family, from Drax who lost his family and then comes in and tries to rebuild, even though all he really wants to do is kill the man who, who killed his family. Yeah. And I, I love that. Yeah, because that's the line, I think, when when Groot says, we are Groot. Yeah, we and are. It, and that, and by and the then, way, setting the stage for something that happens in Guardians 3, which will be a, a shocking, shocking moment, twist. Letting you know that, yes, if he wants to, Groot does have a somewhat larger vocabulary, which is sort of canon in the comics. And I mean, when he appears in, I believe it's Annihilation Conquest, right? Or is it Annihilation? Yeah, it's Annihilation Conquest, yeah. right? Right. He is like saying full sentences and stuff mm-hmm. before the movie came out. And then all of a sudden it's just, I am Groot. Yes. It's a very interesting evolution of the character. And the version that we know as the Guardians of the, Guardians of the Galaxy is the Annihilation Conquest version. Though it's very interesting because the, that's 2008 and the original team was 1969, you know, created by some legends in comics like Gene Kalan and, mm-hmm. you know, Roy Thomas was in there. Arnold Drake was the one who wrote the first issue. And then obviously I just, we always have to shout him out. Uh, it was Bill Mantlo who created, who was a co-creator yes. of Rocket Raccoon, who sadly was in a, a hit and run accident many years ago and is still in in care at the moment of his brother and you can go to the hero initiative and find out ways to support him and other comic book creators because these movies do not exist without them and bill mantlo is like a huge part of the guardians legacy especially when it comes to volume three because of the importance of rocket raccoon but before then it was 2017 it was three years after guardians of the galaxy volume one which was originally just called the guardians of the galaxy but is now retroactively called volume one as we are now with guardians of the galaxy (laughs) volume two mixtape relevant now right re-watching this movie yeah and writing a recap for it is like one of the funniest things i've ever done and you're gonna it's understand a, it's a nuts movie it is it's, absolutely bonkers it's and fucking I, insane i i love kurt russell so much so i'm just so happy to always watch a kurt russell movie but <laughs> i will begin with this sentence that sums up the energy of this movie specifically and also quite a lot of the energy of volume three while protecting some magical batteries for the golden aliens known as the Sovereign in order to free Nebula from the aliens' crutches, the Guardians are saved from a battle with their supposed Sovereign allies by an unknown battalion. It is led by the Celestial Ego, known in the comics as Ego the Living Planet, who is literally a planet in the comics, who soon reveals himself to be Peter's biological father. As they head to Ego's homeworld, Aisha... The golden-skinned lady, played by Elizabeth Debicki, who is the leader of the Sovereign, the High Priestess, and is very relevant for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. She hires Yondu and his Ravagers to hunt down the Guardians. Important to note here. Something Jason has pointed out to me that I had forgotten. The reason she can hire Yondu is because Yondu and his Ravagers have been thrown out of the Ravager community. Why? For trafficking children. For trafficking children. And not only trafficking them, but trafficking them to their deaths. You may dress like us, but you'll never hear the hordes of freedom when you die, Yandu. <laughs> and the colors of a gourd will never flash over your grave. <laughs> In case you didn't know, and that, and that, and that is Stakar Agord, played by Sylvester Stallone, who summarily ejects... Yandu from the Ravager community for 
being a serial trafficker of children to many, ego the many living children. planet who end up dead. How yes. many children? I mean, at the end of this movie, in, this, in the final third of this movie, you will see a pile of bones who are the children who, unlike Peter, did not survive being trafficked. Well, he uh-uh. never delivered Peter to Ego. Yeah. But, you know, he delivered the rest of them. And this pile of bones, folks, you've heard me talk about this before. The mm-hmm. pile of bones. It's immense. It's, it's like 40 feet high, maybe maybe 90, 100 feet wide. It, it's like a pile. Like, it's got to contain... Certainly thousands. Now you might definitely say definitely thousands. Now you, I now, think ego said it at least thousands. Right, and now now many have said to me, mm. well, you know, in in an attempt to to um, you know to ab- absolve it, Yondu of, of quite <laughs> ego all the apologists. Guilt. No, I get it, and I get it because, like, listen, they make Yondu is the father figure mm-hmm. in this movie, and he's a he's good, adoptive essentially dad. a good guy throughout the rest of this series. Um, at, they point out that surely Ego had other traffickers, which is probably true, right? Like, if you just do the math, it seems like unless he, unless Yandu was rounding up like a hundred at a time, it probably would have taken too long. So maybe Yandu is only responsible for like 20 percent of the pile, but well, that is still so many. And by the way, I would then counter with what is the minimum number of child children that you could deliver exactly. to their deaths before you are enough also, before so you're fine i will also say as proven by the existence continued existence of peter quill it was very easy for yondu to actually save one of those children and not deliver them to ego it took ego like 30 years to find this well, guy yondu really could have been not delivering the children i gotta say apparently he was getting them um, too old because I, you know, the the implication is because he kept Peter alive because Peter was small enough to like wriggle through, like ducts and different yes, things. Yes, yes, he was useful as a stuff. thief. So I guess what they're implying there is that the other kids that Yandu delivered <laughs> Ego were maybe a little bit older, like oh, on yeah, the yeah. young adult side, not quite so Acceptable young. Acceptable trafficking age. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, almost you know. legally. Ad- Oh, Don't yeah, yeah. It's like, it's a, if you're killed by your father, who is an omnipotent <laughs> celestial being, when you're an adult, it's not as bad. I'll just say as this. As if it was a kid. Yandu might be redeemed in the course of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and 3. That may have happened. But he'll never hear the horns of freedom when he dies. And the colors <laughs> of a gourd? The colors of a gourd will never flash over his grave. They will that's, never flash over his grave. And I, that's, that's, you know what? that's all that's I have to say punishment. about that. That's all we have to say about that. <laughs> this right. is a movie that's all about daddy issues. You've got Gamora yeah. and Nebula who are kind of battling each other. Nebula wants to kill Thanos and they end up in this fight that ends, luckily for everyone, in a sisterly reunion of some kind. You also have the fact that Yondu who is sent by Aisha, doesn't actually want to give over Quill because that is his yeah, son. He's, he you know, he, he has love for him. He's a good guy, human trafficker, but good guy. And of course, the biggest daddy issues belong to Peter, who learns that not only is his father Ego an omnipotent super being, but also a giant dick. Super and dick. Just a super dick. Multiple he, time child murderer and also the reason that his mom is his dad, but the reason his mom died. Yes, we learn that not only has Ego spent millennia traveling the universe, 
trying to sire children so he can terraform planets with the celestial very powers. Zeus-like. Very Very, very Greek Zeus-y. mythology-like. Very Titan-ish. And he is going to find the child who can harness the celestial powers and the two of them can terraform the universe in Ego's nightmarish, delightful Kurt Russell form. And as Jason pointed out, heartbreakingly, it is also revealed that Ego, for some reason, gave Peter's mama brain tumor. Evil. I mean, already very why, evil behavior, why, but seems, seems extra it's, evil, yeah, like unnecessary, unnecessary, very unnecessary, bad times. So yes, all bad. And if that wasn't bad enough, oh, shock horror. Guess what? We already talked about it. Yondu, Peter's other dad, was helping his real dad kill all these children. So it's you know, all bad times. You know what I realized? So much evil happens in the MCU and in the cosmic MCU because of the gig economy. Just like, just the sovereign. You have this massive fleet. Just go get Peter Quill. Why are you? I get it. Yondu knows him. But But why are you hiring him? Just go yourself. Yeah. Why don't you just like be like, hey, where would we? Where would he go? And then act on that information. Just do it yourself. Ego, you are immensely powerful. We've seen you move around in human form. Go to Earth and meet up with uh, Peter's mom, and go. And clearly, you went to other planets. Did the same thing. Why? Why do you need? All these, like, uh, Postmates deliveries of kids. <laughs> just go do it. You could use your just immense do it celestial yourself. powers to summon them to you or yeah, something. I'm sure there is. And you're just going to trust some rando guy in, like, a flying kind of junk trap? I don't know. And look, and like look what happened. Plan. And look, look what, what happened, happened, Ego. Look what happened. The one kid who you were looking for is the one kid that Yandu is like, I'm going to keep this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Not only that, but you're so bad at planning that that like stopped you in your tracks. You with were your just plan. spinning your wheels for just spinning years, your wheels. And years and years after that, waiting to find Peter Quill and his little Zune. And the big, I would say, the big introduction here is not ego. As much as I would have loved to see Kurt Russell become a super big bad in the MCU, I love Kurt Russell. I love Ego, the Living Planet. Such a weird character. The real yeah. heavy hitter here is Mantis. It's, oh, I love Mantis. Love yeah. Mantis for the comics. Uh, was delighted to see her uh, come to life in the MCU. Yeah, just such a delightful performance by Pom Clemteef and just a wonderful, kind character whose powers as an empath allow her to control people. We will see her play an absolutely immense part in Infinity War, only to be yes. thwarted by the idiocy of Peter Quill. Oh, oh my God. We were... <laughs> we were we were right there, Peter. Like we were there. It was a wrap. We a were gonna wrap. no issue, we were no gonna blip. Stop it, no blip, none of it. No five years. This was and what you all of it was about. Your head. Embarrassing. I'm still Embarrassing. Mad about it. it makes me so angry. So the good thing is because Mantis is such an empath, she connects with Drax, creating one of the best buddy duos in the MCU. It was delightful to see them in the holiday special together. And she reveals Ego's full plan. The guard, this gives the Guardians kind of upper hand. And while Ego is helping Peter harness his celestial powers, which are so immense that they would immediately make Peter the most powerful person in the MCU, yeah. they end up battling. He uses the powers to distract Ego. 
ego is destroyed, the planet is destroyed, and because ego is destroyed, Peter's powers are gone. His celestial powers. Because he'd be too overpowered. It, w- it would be too powerful. So he's are gone. They, are they, let me ask you this. Because clearly the powers are gone, but his celestial hybrid physiology is mm-hmm. clearly quite durable. Yes, and it was, his physiology was noted by the Nova Corps. That's where it yeah. kind of first came from. So it is there. And I do think in God, it's some of the better and best, actually. We kind of talked about this and we'll talk about it more stuff in volume three. We do get to see him kind of have a superhero movements yeah. and almost like uh, my favorite, one of my favorite books and TV series, Shadow and Bone. There's a great way that magic works in that. And you will see people who are good at shooting guns and the gun shooting goodness comes from their skills in magic, kind of like wanted having, you know, bullet power curving as a superpower. So I kind of think that that inherent superheroic nature and celestial physiology, I like that. That's a good catch. It's still there. He's not uh, celestial fully now and he can't be like blasting planets, but he's definitely got a little bit more than your average average guy. He does at the end of Guardians survive excuse me, in the middle of Guardians survive the vacuum of space and he does survive many spoiler. He is a he continues to be able to be in the vacuum of space without a spacesuit <laughs> for a extended period of time. Yes. And sadly, Peter does not only have to say goodbye to his biological father, who was a super dick, so no, no one dick. misses him, sorry. Right. But he has to say goodbye to Yondu, who sacrifices himself to save Peter in an ultimate moment of re- what the MCU sees as redemption. What we see as good for you, but doesn't mean you didn't traffic thousands of children. <laughs> you did traffic. In, the, in his final moments, one can only hope that in addition to Peter, the many, many other nameless children... <laughs> Run through his mind. Run through his mind in the final seconds of his life, and we thank him for his sacrifice. Yeah, and this is really where we get our core Guardians team. Even We have Mantis joins, and we end up, even though Nebula heads off to kill Thanos, which leads us to the kind of events of the yeah. big Infinity War and Endgame, she is already now part of the team. Absolutely. And you kind of have that core crew going forward into the rest of the MCU and the wider Marvel galaxy. That takes us to the non-Guardians movie. Now, uh, where have these various characters ended up? Uh, The first one where we see uh, some Guardians characters is Infinity War, first non-Guardians movie. Uh, We see them in a mission uh, to take down Thanos. They are the away team, basically. They Mm -hmm. go to Titan with... Uh, with Tony, with uh, uh, Peter Parker, with Doctor Strange. You have uh, Mantis, you have Drax, you have Gamora, you have uh, Peter Quill. And they, again, almost pull it off. Yes. They come very, very close to it. They come very, very close. But it's Peter Quill. He has a little problem because prior to this, Gamora has gone missing. Viewers know that heartbreakingly she has been taken by her father Thanos to be thrown off the cliffs of Vormir in a sacrifice for the Soul Stone. As Thanos told us, what did it cost him? It cost me everything. You know, he's feeling sad about it. He wishes he didn't have to kill his daughter, but he does. And in that 
shocking, one of the most annoying moments in the MCU. I was very happy to hear that James Gunn did not believe that this was the route the character would have taken in the press tour in the lead up to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Peter Quill finds out from an empath-possessed Thanos that Gamora is dead. So he punches him in the head. We are we are so close. The 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 glove is coming off. The gauntlet is coming off. Right there. there will be no click. There Mantis, will be no blip. I, I just want to shout out Mantis in this scene Whew. because it is her you really get a feeling for the depths of her power. She's able mm-hmm. to keep Thanos, who is un just like we you know, he beat up the Hulk. He beat up Thor. He's he's a match for he has many without gems. the stones. Yeah, without even without the stones, he's a match for almost any of our heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mantis has him on the ropes for a while, just yeah. like keeping her and Drax' ultimate team up. It's working. It's really, really, really great. So shouts to Mantis. It didn't work because Peter lost his shit, and I get it. It's heartbreaking to find out that uh, you're. The woman you love uh, was thrown off a cliff on a real mirror <laughs> in, um, in order to, to acquire an Infinity Stone. But but just let us beat him right now. Be angry afterwards. Take the yeah. take take the gauntlet and then do it. But no, he blows up. All goes horribly wrong. The only other member that wasn't on the team at that point in that very moment, Nebula had been being tortured by right. Thanos, but she manages right. to escape. Because he kind of puts the Chitari in charge. And as we know, the Chitari can't really get shit done. So she escapes, teams up. And she is one of the few members of the Guardians who does not end up getting dusted. Yes. As we head into Endgame. Do, let me ask you this. Do robots, do androids get dusted? Hmm. Does, does, does synthetic life, I'm not saying it's not life. But I'm saying would... Ultron get dusted? Would Jocasta get dusted? I don't... Would danger the uh, the sentient <laughs> human-formed embodiment of the danger room get dusted? I don't think so in MCU canon. I cannot really... Would Cyborg I... get dusted just the human part? Leaving just... just the Cyborg... <laughs> <laughs> Everything... I, I believe... Would Deathlock get dusted just the it... human part? The MCU is too, it adds many more rules. I feel like in the comics, when the blip happens, it's just, you just eradicate life, right? right and life, it's just biological like, it's half of life. life. He wants to, he wants to impress death. He wants to sleep with his girlfriend who's saying no to him and he does it to impress her. I feel like in the movies, sentient life is a gray area because right. we don't, like vision seems to still exist, and that could be that he didn't. So get Nebula dusted, is like a loophole, really. Le- Nebula is a loophole, I think, because she actually—that is such a great point. She is essentially her father's own downfall, yeah. Because he has tortured her so much, replaced her eyes as a form of torture. We see him pulling her apart and kind of going oh, through her horrific. memories. I Karen Gillan is so brilliant in that role. I really love Nebula. And your that is such a great catch because you're absolutely right. She essentially becomes a loophole, and then she goes on to join the Avengers in Endgame and become a primary part of taking down her father. Yeah, is a huge and obviously her connection with her alternate self mm-hmm. 
basically sparks the final big fight on yeah, uh, and the her wreckage sister, of uh, the Avengers compound. Her past sister, uh, Gamora. You know, she is the one who's able to make that connection with her and put her on side. Next, there's Drax, who we last saw. Um, of course, he got uh, he got dusted. Yes, uh, very he sadly. He came back. He uh, put put in a great showing during the big fight at the Avengers compound against he really uh, did. Thanos and his forces. And uh, we see him stab one of those big Chitari beasts in the back, among other He's things. He's looking tough. He's a very, very tough guy. He's looking tough. And uh, later we see him in the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special as part of the uh, harebrained scheme to kidnap Kevin Bacon in order to cheer up Peter Quill, who is very, very, very depressed because... One, his girlfriend Gamora died, and two, she came back, but the alternate version Didn't from know before him. they were together <laughs> and doesn't know him and has no interest in ever getting to know him. Yeah, which is And honestly fair great. to her because it's such I a weird it. what a weird Imagine coming to an alternate world and being like, Hey, by the way, we get together later and you're just like, I can't no. see it. No. And also thank like Pia's annoying, let's be real. Like he's a he doesn't bit have annoying. he's not he's not coming at it with like a romantic <clears throat> or interesting sensibility. I mean but if yeah. you re- uh, you know, having just watched the Guardians movies back to back, man, uh, Peter Peter makes a lot of his galactic body count in that first mm-hmm. movie. He is just talking about it, talking about the oh, various constantly. scars that he has all over his body mm-hmm. as a result of these galactic dalliances with various alien women. Yeah, we get that really famous scene where he's, you know, he goes up in the ship and, and kind of flies around crazy and then the girl comes out of his bedroom and he'd forgotten she was there, you know, so. Come on, Pete. Come on, man. What are you doing? Oh, also speaking of the holiday special, yeah. very important thing to note here. That that honestly, I I still think is actually my favorite Guardians thing. I I loved it. The vibe was just so good, and that was a massive moment for Mantis, who again, like you said, absolutely smashed it. Almost defeated Thanos. Peter fucked it up. Comes back after the blip, and we see her really coming into her own with Drax during the Christmas special, the holiday special. They go on this funny kidnapping adventure, but really the big moment is that she reveals that she's actually Peter's half-sister. She is also the daughter of Ego. Right. So that was she's a, a big hybrid. beat for her. Yeah. And it explains why her powers are so intense. Makes a lot of sense. Next up, our good friend Rocket Raccoon played a very, very important role in Infinity War. Um, goes off with Thor in order to create a new Yuru metal weapon, uh, this time an axe. Oh, uh, yeah. They go off to Nivodilir and uh, they create this axe. Um, Rocket then uh, plays, again, in a, a really important role during the final battle. He does not get snapped, uh, nope. notably. And then uh, bef- in the time between... Uh, Endgame and Love and Thunder is running around in space with Thor, who is kind of like an adopted member of the team for a period. Yeah, we really thought we were going to get the Asgardians of the galaxy, and it didn't really happen, but we got to kind of tease it, and then we got to see it a little bit with that one great opening fight scene in in Love and Thunder. And obviously, again, going back to Holiday Special, it's Rocket who really befriends Cosmo. Cosmo first appeared in the post credit scene for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 with Howard the Duck, as part of the collector's collection. 
But we really get to see Cosmo kind of be brought into the fold in the holiday special, which becomes a major part of volume three. We should, yeah, so... I guess, should we talk about Cosmo briefly then first? Let's, so Cosmo, yeah. of course, the space dog sent up by the Russians during the early days of the space race, um, just kind of was floating around up there, was uh, picked up by the collector who loves weird, one-off, kitschy things, and here is a dog, in, <laughs> a Russian dog <laughs> in space. Collector loved it, picked him up, picked her up, uh, experimented on her and uh, basically gave her full human level intelligence, sentience, and an ability to communicate both with her mind and to uh, ha- and to use telekinetic powers. Yeah, and a cool, pretty like, freaking cool, up, a cool like up Doug style, you know, speaking yeah. collar, which yes. really really gets used well in uh, in volume volume three. I love to see Cosmo. I think that's one of the coolest. Cosmo is fantastic. That's a, such a cool bit of real history kind of reimagined. Like, what if she wasn't just sacrificed for the space race and instead became this super cool hero? And I guess that's what Guardians does so well. Because, I mean, the member that we have yet to talk about what he got up to after, you know, Volume 2 is Groot, who is literally a tree. But has become one of, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say that. He is an alien species that looks like a tree. Super, but I mean, super flora, yeah. Yeah, super flora. But to fans and people out there, this is a really one of the weirdest, big, strange MCU characters and comic book characters. And the thing I love about it is, like, you see kids now who are going around and they are wearing, like, a little Groot on their shoulder. Yeah. Like, this is a character that speaks so much to who and what the Guardians are and why they've become so popular. It, it's kind of mind-blowing, especially, like, this is, you know, you're talking about a Stanley, Stanley's brother, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby creation. This is, like, old-school, weird, super iconic creator stuff. And he has become one of the most beloved characters in the whole of the MCU. And among our... Uh our core MCU characters is notable for basically being unkillable. That's what I'm saying. He's, I would, I think it's fair to say he's immortal. If there is even a splinter of Groot that remains, Groot lives on. Like you have to chop up his entire body and like incinerate it. At the highest possible temperature, because I don't dis- I don't believe that a little ash. bit of, even a, I think a little bit of ash, if there was just a tiny bit of liquid still in there, you could probably plant it and get a new Well, I, I think certainly if he creates pollen and the Ooh. pollen flies off, I think he comes back. Like, mm-hmm. just, you know, we've seen him reduced to a, essentially a twig. We saw yep. him grow up from a baby. In Guardians 3, he is even more able to, like, morph his body than ever before. And uh, essentially unkillable. You can't kill Groot. Groot cannot die. Yeah, he's he's a key character, fun character. He's what's he been up to? He was in Thor: Love and Thunder. You got to see him there. We're seen in the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, freaking people out with his buff, kind of early twenties body. And obviously, as well, he's so popular that he even got his own Baby Groot animated series, which is very delightful. And not necessarily like important canon, but just very cute. So that's what they've all been up to. And now they're, they're headed to uh, Old Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Let's get into it. Up next, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. 
You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, depending on when you're hearing this, uh, it might come out the very day that you are hearing this, uh, release date May 5th. It is the second film in Phase 5 of the MCU after uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Um, And we're going to recap it now off the top of our heads. Wow. Skillful. Because uh, obviously we saw it in a screening. We're not able to uh, take notes, have devices out. And it's been a few days. But here we go as we attempt to do this. So we open on Nowhere, which is now the headquarters of the Guardians of the Galaxy. The Guardians have opened a kind of bar slash headquarter base. Yeah, uh, like a little PI office. You can come and hire a guardian. You can what do you hire need? the guardians to do stuff as we saw, you know, just like we saw the uh, the opening of Guardians 2 where, uh, you know, they had been hired by the Sovereign to uh, to basically kill the battery-eating monsters. I guess you could hire them out depending on yeah, uh, heroes know what the rates are. Now, here's the thing. Um, Peter Quill has fallen into substance abuse. He is depressed because... Again, Gamora was killed by her father, Thanos, and then Gamora came back, but it's not, but it's alternate version Gamora who never had, from the past, who never had a relationship with him, doesn't remember him, and is not interested in having a relationship with him. And basically, Peter treats her as if she died, which she did. She did die. So he's she basically acting like she's de- she's de- she's dead and he's mourning her. But the alternate version uh Gamora remained in this timeline and is now running around with the Ravagers. Yeah, and Peter's having a rough time of it. He is so wasted in their little bar that we begin the movie with Rocket listening to Creep by Radiohead as all of this is going on. He has taken Peter's beloved Zune. That's how out of it Peter is. He's not even looking after the Zune. So once again, uh, it's a gig economy in space and the high evolutionary who is a, the big bad of this movie and is a mad scientist, uh, genius level genetic 
madman who also has like various corporations that uh, th- that are made up of his creations and has even created entire worlds, has tasked the sovereign and our good friend Aisha, who we learn here, are actually a creation of the high evolutionary. The mm-hmm. high evolutionary created the entire people and world of the sovereign, has tasked Aisha with uh, getting back his most prized creation, and that is Rocket Raccoon, who uh, we see in flashbacks the things that Rocket endured throughout this movie at the hands of the High Evolutionary. And let's stop here to talk about that because yes. it is bracing. Folks, we know a lot of parents listen to this uh, listen to this podcast. And uh, certainly you're thinking, oh, man, the, my kid loved uh, Guardians 1 and loved Guardians 2. I would say if your kid is like, let's say, younger than 13, mm-hmm. maybe younger than 11, what would you say? Younger than I'd say 11? It, it, all, it all depends on the, the capacity that your kid has for watching animals in trauma. I feel the, like it's it is, very specific. I watched a lot of horror films as a kid. Yeah. But I was devastated by, you know, uh, Watership Down. This is it's very much like Watership Down, Watership where you down, see these the cute extreme. animals getting put through terrible, terrible things at the hands of one of the most evil characters that we've seen in the FCU. If you are somebody who uses the website, does a dog die? <laughs> you will likely have issues watching this movie. It has a very vigorous and visceral representation of animals being tested on of animals being harmed and some animals r.i.p to those animals sadly being killed animals do die in this movie animals do die Um, and fictionally fictionally cgi animals made by the hard-working vfx people at the prop store i believe and yes and i will tell you as a kid as a as a person who as a child rented watership down because i saw cute bunnies on the cover mm-hmm. of the VHS and thought this will be great, cute bunnies, and was really, really messed up for a little <laughs> while after watching that film. I could imagine if you're a young kid and you love cute animals that this or would Rocket be- Or Rocket Raccoon. Or Rocket Raccoon. This is going to be, this is going to be hard, a hard watch. Also, I would say as a person, I had to, I had to delay my screening because my dog uh, got spayed on the first night of the screening, so I had to find a one the second night. And so uh, going to that movie <laughs> while my dog was recovered for surgery was really rough. It was yeah. rough. It's rough. <laughs> it was rough. It's, it was, it's it, brutal. It rough. It's yeah. definitely very much in that horror movie vein. And I would also say, you know, far less importantly, but just have to put it out there. If you're a fan of the comic book version of The High Evolutionary, you will likely be shocked because this version is very, very, very evil. The High Evolutionary has a lot of problems, but it this is a very... This is a villain who, by the time you inevitably watch him defeated, you are happy. It's extremely it. cathartic. You I, love I will, to see it. I, we'll get to that. I, and yeah, and like, it's a good point, Rosie, because the comics version of The High Evolutionary is a very frosty, remote, like uh, uh, emotionally unavailable, cerebral, kind of professorial kind of semi-villain. I wouldn't call yeah. him an out-and-out villain. Yeah. But, but the movie version of The High Evolutionary is 
at Pure brilliant, evil. But, a, but a basic, like a raving madman. Yeah. Like a stark raving madman who's even his like uh, top lieutenants and assistants are like, this Terrified. guy is like on the edge of losing it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the high evolutionary hires the sovereign uh, and our good friend Aisha and her newly hatched Adam Warlock. Who you may remember the, from the post credit scene of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Who's uh, been hatched. He is uh, fully uh, presenting as an adult, but has the intellectual abilities, well, uh, of basically like a, maybe like a 12-year-old. Yeah, he's a baby. He, he's he like isn't a baby, a baby, but he is a baby. He's it's, really stupid. Yes, it's a very, he's a, he's a himbo and it's going to be yes. a very controversial read on one of the most powerful characters in Marvel Comics history. Your gig, your gig economy question is right. Your point is right. Do not hire the baby alien, even though he's very powerful. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing, folks. So they hire Aisha and she sends uh, Adam Warlock to go pick up Rocket in order to return him to the High Evolutionary, who is threatened to wipe out the Sovereign if they are not successful. Uh, so uh, Adam Warlock co- go, flies to nowhere, is just a wrecking shop all in the streets, destroys the Guardian's bar slash base, is fighting with Nebula, is fighting with Drax, is fighting with everybody. And long story short, they fight him off, but Rocket is very, very seriously injured in the scrap, and unfortunately, they can't fix. They can't fix him. They can't do any medical care on him because there is a kill switch inside of his chest that is uh, copyright registered, copyright protected to Org Corp, the uh, main corporate entity the CEO of which is the high evolutionary. So basically they have to find the, uh, you know, the unlock key at corporate headquarters of org corp in order to save rocket's life. Now we are on this mission. Uh, the guardians enlist Gamora who has been running around with her, uh, with her ravagers. They actually invade the, uh, the guardian ship at one point and they convince her, Hey, uh, let's team up. You want to break into Org Corp because you and the Ravagers want to steal a bunch of like really, really uh, expensive and rare corporate IP that the High Evolutionary has created, <laughs> and we want to save Rocket. So, will you help us? And the answer is yes. So the for Guardians money. for money. So the Guardians plus Gamora break into Org Corp, and it's it is a feast for the eyes. Yes. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie. We get a classic, powerful James Gunn needle drop. We get Space Hog, and it's playing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's playing as they wear these rainbow-colored space suits and kind of into the ether. And Org Corp is very fun because it's a organic space not a sentient being but an organic space structure right. so There's it's no kind of gross or very little metal it's the space, lots of the, skin yeah and it's made muscle. of flesh essentially pretty gross yeah in the best way and so they get there and they decide that the only thing they can do is cut their way in 
seeing as it's skin, which is great. They get in there. They sort of seem like they're going to do a great heist. I have to say, I feel like it's going quite well at the beginning until they come up against Nathan Fillion in a very hilarious role. Right. He's like head of security. Security head. Yeah. Security guy. So a big fight uh, breaks off there in various little groups. You have Mantis and Drax fighting Nathan Fillion. You have uh, Gamora and Peter Quill, kind of uh, Peter trying to rekindle the romance. Actually, just kindle, because again, this is a different person. (laughs) Just kindle it in the first place. And they're off like trying to steal the... uh, the flesh ball that yes. is the hard drive that contains all the information about uh, the creation of Rocket Raccoon. Uh, they managed to get the flesh ball, uh, but it doesn't contain the key. The key they discover has been downloaded into the, uh, the neural implant of one of the two top assistants to the high evolutionary who they learn is not in org corp headquarters he is on counter earth in his dun, like dun, dun. pyramid other is pyramid shaped corporate building there and counter earth is a kind of continuation of the uh, experiments that created rocket raccoon the uh, you know uh, all of this time the high evolutionary has been trying to create very very smart animal hybrids that are peaceful. Yes, he wants to create a utopian world. And for some reason for him, that includes making animal-human hybrids. And this is very interesting because it's a counter-Earth is a big comic book thing from High Evolutionary's Past created by Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. And it's this idea of a purer Earth. Yes. It's a better version of Earth. And that is what he is going for here. But as we see, there are not, there are many problems on Counter Earth that are just the same as real Earth. Even if you do fill it with very, very, very brilliantly brought to life animal human hybrids. And now it seems like, you know, they land in a suburb, and for the most part, everybody seems uh, very generous and very nice. There is a uh, animal human hybrid family that uh, takes. They look like they are um, bats. Some, maybe uh, bats. Maybe yes. Yeah. Some, some kind of bat or uh, bat hybrid. They take uh, Peter and the team in and give him delicious drinks and point him in the right direction where to find the high evolutionary. Uh, uh, but also on the outskirts of the suburbs and kind of like closer into the city of Counter-Earth, there's like, you know, there's drugs, there is crime. There's, there's homelessness. Violence, there's homelessness. And this is a very, this is a sticking point for the high evolutionary who is, views Counter-Earth essentially as a failure and is currently on, uh, onto another experiment in this line of experiments to create a utopia. He's created these other creatures who, Again, who are very smart. They can solve all these kind of mathematical problems. They can repair starships. Uh, but he's not, he's still tinkering with it. He's not quite happy with it. But they are all, they all exist as children. Yeah. And he believes that the key to fixing his problem and creating a true animal human hybrid super being is Rocket Raccoon because Rocket right. is the only one of his creations that's ever been able to innovate. 
Every That's other right. one of his creations, he feels like can just repeat things that he's taught them. But Rocket was incredibly smart. Rocket was actually, as we learn in a flashback, it was Rocket who worked out how to make the animal-human hybrids peaceful. It was to do with a filtration system. It, Rocket, the reason Rocket is still alive is due to his own innovation and creation with building things and inventing things. In fact, Nebula has a very cool new arm in this movie and we learn that it's Rocket who created it. So we're really getting to see how his horrific past encouraged his intelligence and inventiveness as well as this kind of trauma and anger that it obviously gave him. Now, during these flashbacks, we we meet Rocket's friends who are part of the same batch of this animal experimentation that the, uh, that the high evolutionary was doing. Now, these are evolved up animals that have been given various kinds of cybernetic implants, very rough and very hard to look at ones. But so these uh, friends of rockets are Lila, who is a sea otter uh, with metal arms, Teefs, who is a walrus with uh, big wheels for hind legs, and Floor, who's just like a very delightful, very sunny, very, very optimistic little bunny rabbit with kind of arachnid, metal arachnid legs. And a and scary mouth. And a scary mouth. And they all get to, they all create names, these names for each other, and they all bond over the idea that one day, Master, the high evolutionary, is going to create this utopia, which ends up being Counter Earth. And they are going to get to live there in freedom and stare at the sky. And it is fucking heartbreaking shit. Yeah. Real talk. Like, it is really, it is hard. And again, this is where if you have a if you have to want to take a young kid to this, it's mm-hmm. gonna be it's gonna be rough because like me and his belt, I was like, this is this is rough. It's really rough, and, and it's it hard makes to you hate you fucking hate the high evolutionary. Mm-hmm. You hate him. You yeah. will hate the high evolutionary. And if you have read the Grant Morrison Frank Quietly comic from Vertigo, we three we about we, uh, the. We suggested it on one of our yeah. Comics, we've suggested uh, it in the past. It's it's such a brilliant comic. It's heartbreaking, but it's hopeful. And it essentially works as a story about three animals who are created as prototype weapons and their kind of journey to freedom. And it is very, I think, fair and likely to say that that was a huge influence on Floor oh, Teeth for sure. For sure, for sure. and Rocket's journey. And I'm Grant... James Gunn is a huge fan of Grant Morrison. We know Grant's work will be a large part of their next steps at DC. So it's kind of wild to see a, a little version of We Three come to life, especially in Floor, who I feel like is very similar to the rabbit in that pirate who is just heartbreakingly sweet and optimistic in the way they talk. It, it It's really brutal stuff. I'm very it's interested. Very, it is very It's t- very it brutal. Is, it's very brutal. <laughs> X-Ray Vision will be back. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You like to watch new stuff, right? 
Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Fashion's Biggest Night was Monday, and just like every other year, Anna Wintour made sure to make this year's Met Gala red carpet mandatory watching. But did you know that before she was the editor of Vogue, Anna Wintour ran the fashion section for a little-known porno mag called Viva in the 1970s? Check out Crooked's latest limited series podcast called Stiffed to learn about the rise Wink, 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 wink. And Fall of Viva, the erotic magazine for women that rocked the publishing world in 1973 New York City. With a team of feminist writers and editors behind it and Porn King publisher at the helm, were they always destined for failure? Find out now by listening to Stift, available for free on your favorite podcast platform. And we're back. So uh, so the High Evolutionary is in his uh, pyramid-shaped corporate headquarters on Counter-Earth. And the Guardians figure out that he's there. And uh, the High Evolutionary knows that they know he's there. And in fact, he has set this trap because he wants Rocket Raccoon. The Guardians have Rocket Raccoon. And he knows that they need the key in order to unlock the uh, the 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 corporate trademark lock on on uh, time lock on rocket's heart in order to save his life and uh, this will allow the, the the high evolutionary to have rocket basically delivered right into his clutches and it kind of works so the guardians go to the corporate headquarters uh and there's a big fight there and um one of many uh, shootouts in the movie. One I of many say. shootouts. Many the shootouts. The High Evolutionary. Uh, oh, we should add that uh, Adam Warlock, who is saddened at the death of Aisha in one of the uh, one of the previous scenes, goes to Counter Earth, uh, basically gets his clock cleaned, and then kind of soft joins the Guardians of the Galaxy, or at least like yeah. adds him. It, it goes Unwilling on their side. Jo- yeah, because. What we learn about the High Evolutionary, and we can assume that the Sovereign is one of the lucky communities this didn't happen to, he has gone through history creating these new worlds and then destroying them if they don't live up to his... Right. You know, so when they got to Counter-Earth and Counter-Earth's going to be destroyed because there's these drug problems, there's homelessness, he wants to do it again. I thought the Guardians might try and save Counter-Earth, but it's too it's late. Too big a lift. They're too already, big a lift. Oh, they're yeah, so already should... destroying it. They're all, so... It's happening. So uh, Peter and uh, uh, Peter and Groot get the code, get the passcode from the head of the uh, assistant to the High Evolutionary. His and not just like his memory, his literal head. They kill his him and they take head, it out they kill of him his and, head and take the head and take the piece out of the head. And while this is going on, the High Evolutionary has triggered the um, destruct of Counter Earth, all of Counter Earth, and the untold millions if maybe not billions of uh, animal hybrids that live there are all in the process of being destroyed uh peter gets the code back uh they save rocket's life and as they're saving his life in the present we get the flashback of basically how rocket escaped from the clutches of the high evolution he uh discovers that the high evolutionary plans to kill 
all of them, kill his friends, kill them all. So he play, he puts into motion an escape plan, which he had apparently been uh, been working on all of this time. He had hidden little pieces of uh, of machinery all around his cage, and he puts them together, and it's a key in order to escape. He escapes from the crate, uh, get, opens the other cage to get the other animals out, but the high evolution shows up. Uh, with his guards, they open fire, and uh, very, very, very sadly, Rocket's friends are killed. Rocket flies into a rage. He jumps onto the high evolutionary and just kicks, just tears, literally tears his face off. Literally. Uh, and then uh, jumps in a spaceship uh, and escapes, and then, uh, you know, we don't know what happens until we catch up with him at the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Now, we learn about that, and then... As they're working on Rocket, it seems like it seems like it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. They've unlocked his heart, but it's the heart isn't beating, and Rocket is near death in his in some kind of limbo state. His consciousness is walking into a light. He sees his friends. He sees Lila comes to him. And this is, again, I'm like actually getting choked up talking about it. <laughs> they they know him. everyone's going to be crying at this point. Lila like. comes to him. Teefs and Floor are there in the background. And uh, and he's so happy to see her. And he's like, oh, finally, I can just be with my friends. And like, yeah, we, we can be together. We're going to do that. Lila tells him, we're going to be together one day and just stare at the sky, all of us together and be friends. He's like, this is so great. Thank, oh, I, finally, I can rest. And then she puts her uh, medal hand on his chest and she says but not now because you still have something to do uh he needs to go back and he needs to uh you know fight with the guardians and free all the children that are the current experiment of the high evolutionary so uh he comes back to life they go to the high evolutionaries uh now space-born uh pyramid they invade it they free all the kids um, there is a wonderful – so the High Evolutionaries put out the alert like, OK, all forces, be on alert for the Guardians. Get me Rocket Raccoon uh, by any means necessary. Kill the rest uh, and do what you have to do to get them. That sets up – and this is a wonderful subversion. We've talked a lot on this podcast elsewhere <laughs> about, about the third act big fight problems that Marvel often encounters, Right. I think this is one of the smartest, if not the smartest, subversion of that trope that Marvel has done yet. So rather than have this big showdown with the high evolutionary, right, the big boss, the big fight is with his henchies, including Mm -hmm. these half animal, half uh, android cyborg creatures and a bunch of human guardsmen. And it is awesome. They do such a good job. It has this great, these large one-shots, this really interesting use of slow motion. It really speaks, I think it's a great callback to some of the earlier fights that really made Guardians stand out, but it's been streamlined to the point where when you see it on that big screen, it's incredibly impressive. It it recalls the fight on Ronan the Accuser's ship from the Mm -hmm. first one, but with the kind of scope and ambition and general coolness of... The, the big Infinity War yeah, like, yeah, yeah. portals fight. Like, it's okay. that kind of thing. But moral moral question here. Oh, yeah, you let's talk about this. You mentioned the cyborg animal hybrid kind yes. of characters who are used as w- part of the body count for the high evolutionary. 
what are the morals here? Like we're saving the ones who look like humans. Rocket was one of the ones who was unfinished and was kind of androidy. I feel like that's one of the things for me where I was left thinking about it afterwards where I was like, who gets saved and how do we try and save them? And I understand they didn't have a lot of time to answer those questions. Yeah, this was a moment where I did want... I did find myself wishing for some kind of just even a line about how sad they were, mm-hmm. you know, like something in the Matrix. I remember that moment in the Matrix where uh, where Neo uh, where Neo is having explained to him wh- that everybody they see in the Matrix is a person, mm-hmm. and that occasionally that means they're going to have to kill people who are plugged into the Matrix, but that's just the way it is because they're trying to free everyone in order to free everyone. They're going to have to fight these pieces of the system that are trying to imprison them. I found myself wishing that there Mm -hmm. was something, some kind of justification like that, where it's like, listen, we wish we could free these very, very aggressive and hyper violent and hyper loyal creations of the high evolutionary, but we can't because they're trying to kill us. Um, I, I, I did find myself wishing that had happened, yeah. but that does not happen. It and so they just happen. kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> Lots but of killing. A, Lots of killing. There's a lot of killing. And it's an, inc- the fight scene is, a, is freaking incredible. And then the final showdown with the high evolutionary, um, is a really cathartic, like one minute fucking beat down. <laughs> the high evolutionary with his gravity powers that he, uh, he, he upgraded his suit ever since Rocket tore his face off. He's like, never again. And gave himself gravity powers. Well, Rocket had created a kind of like anti-gravity power device that he then triggers after a little while of getting thrown around by the high evolutionary. And he just proceeds along with the rest of the Guardians to beat the living tar out of the high evolutionary who then lies, you know, uh, uh, before them. And... Everybody's like, okay, well, Rocket, if you want to finish him off, you go ahead and do it. And then Rocket says, no, I won't because I'm a guardian of the galaxy. I won't. And which is, again, a very, very noble statement, which comes after they kill so a lot many of people. other creatures. I mean, there's literally a moment where we get within an hour, Star-Lord is saying to Drax, we can't kill anyone. We're guardians. That's what we do. And then... <laughs> Star-Lord and Groot go into a room where Groot pulls out many guns, which I will say I do not believe he needs to kill people. But, and then Chris Pratt, Star-Lord says, kill them all. But now you don't kill if you're a guardian. I feel like there is a morally complex conversation to be had there. But I understood where Groot was. I understood where Rocket was coming from because he has been tortured and he doesn't want to enact that violence on the man who did it to him. I'll say this. When Peter Quill says kill them all, at that point I was absolutely on side because all of the people in that room were human enablers, C-suite followers of the high evolutionary, not the hybrid animal guards. It was just like the most evil top level cadre of the high evolutionary, and I was absolutely like, "Yeah, get the get rid of (laughs) you." Like, Like, I don't want to want to see any of them anymore. I don't want to deal with it. So uh, they take down the High Evolutionary, and as the High Evolutionary's ship is crashing, they then go on a mission, much like Noah's Ark, to save as many of the creatures that are on this uh, crashing corporate headquarters as they can. They start with the uh, sentient creatures. So it's like 
the uh, the very very smart animal hybrids who aren't still trying to kill them and this race of white-haired children who was, again, the latest experiment that the high evolution is working on. They get all the kids off the ship, but then Rocket, you know, visits the area where he was kept in the cages and decides, no, no, we're saving all the Mm -hmm. animals too. And the monsters. Uh, And the battery-eating monsters, three of them from the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. There's three of them uh, kept on this uh, corporate headquarters and they... Uh, Mantis basically turns them into friends, which then made me retroactively sad that they sliced that one open. <laughs> yeah, because she realizes she actually realizes that they are not inherently aggressive creatures. They just They're just defending themselves. Yeah, they just, just want to eat a battery. That's so, all they want. I love to see Mantis and her new monster buddies. So yeah, they save everyone and everyone ends up on nowhere, which I'm very glad that Celestial's head was so big because you're talking about a population bump of like at least 5,000. So there's all these <laughs> are Terran animals now on nowhere. And uh, one would imagine all these uh, 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 children creations of the high evolutionary and some uh, hybrid creations. Uh, and they join uh, a ragtag cast that was already living on nowhere, including uh, Craglin, who helps out in the, in the big fight and uh, successfully learns to use uh, Yandu's uh, whistle uh, needle. Uh, in a in a wonderful moment where he kind of sees the visage, the like a, a vision of Yandu, like basically urging him on, saying like you can do it, you can use this weapon. Uh, as they're defending nowhere from the the creations of the high evolutionary, it's a nice moment, uh, you know, from a a, a a now deceased child, multiple time child trafficker. <laughs> um, the broker is hanging out with them on nowhere. Yeah, Cosmo, she's doing some cool telekinesis. She's a good a dog. Wonderful- She's very, very powerful now, we see. Mm-hmm. She's able to keep Nowhere and the uh, corporate headquarters, the High Evolution corporate headquarters, like in parallel orbit for a period of time just using her telekinetic powers, which is wow. like Gene Grey Cosmo MVP. Gene Grey level stuff. There's a wonderful subplot with uh, Craglin and Cosmo uh, where he calls her a bad dog and it really just bothers her for basically the entire movie. Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> and then he finally she gets her good dog moment when she smashes some people with some giant rocks. So all good stuff. Love Cosmo. And, uh, Peter once again survives uh, the vacuum of space. I uh, thought he was going to die. I thought he was done. No guardian perishes. Shocking twist. Shocking twist. But the original team does break up. Peter decides, you know what? I've got some unfinished business on Earth. My grandfather's still alive. I'd like to go visit him. Drax says, I don't even know who I am. I've been fighting all this time. Uh, I've now met. Uh, He really had an immediate connection and affinity with these children created Mm -hmm. by the High Evolutionary. And it makes him... Think of what he missed with his daughter who was uh, killed by Thanos. And now he's basically gone off to raise these kids. Uh, uh, Mantis also leaves because honestly, being an empath is wearying. And she's just been carrying the emotional baggage of all of this team for all of this time. She's fucking burnt out. And and she needs to know who she is. So she takes her battery eating monsters and off they go. A beautiful. You love it. You love love to to see see that. Um, And the new team who we see at the uh, first stinger is uh, Rocket Raccoon, leader, now retconned as basically a super genius. Yes. Um, who has uh, accepted crack. that he is a raccoon. He's accepted. Because he would always I say mean, he, he was never. It on his, 
It yeah. said it on his cage. So he finally, yeah. he says, He's I'm like, Rocket I guess Raccoon. I am. I guess I so, am. So uh, leader, Rocket Raccoon. Cosmo. Yes, love to see I it. Which I think, wonderful addition. Perfect. One of the children rescued from the High Evolutionary, who we discover is Philavel. I would say almost certainly with the purple flaming hands that seem to be able to create weapons. Very cool deep cut addition there. Adam Warlock, the baby. The baby <laughs> Warlock. The baby. He's there. He's being charming. He's being bumbling. He's bringing a Hugh Grant energy to the entire thing. And, uh, and Swole Groot. Swole Groot. Uh, and it's a wonderful, a wonderful team. They are out in, out in the galaxy, just basically still for hire. Uh, and then we, where do we leave Peter? We leave Peter on Earth. He goes back. He visits his grandfather, who recognizes him instantly, despite the fact that he's now an adult. And last time mm-hmm. I saw him, was like eleven, something in the eyes, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, and uh, we leave them around the breakfast table, just talking about mowing lawns mm-hmm. and uh, and the. Words that come across the screen as the movie ends are... The legendary Star-Lord will return. In what, you might be asking, no one knows. No one knows. Uh, All in all, an emotionally powerful MCU film. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's... it's, It depends. Your mileage may vary depending on how big a Guardians fan you are. I like the Guardians... I love Rocket Raccoon. I love Groot. I love Gamora. The Gamora ending is actually my favorite part of the one of my favorite really parts of the movie. Yeah. We end up in a situation where so Nebula and Drax stay on nowhere. They're gonna raise these kids. They're gonna run nowhere as like a safe space for people, a safe safe home. And rather than make Gamora and Peter fall back in love, which didn't seem at all natural to the character, agreed. We get to see Gamora return to the Ravagers as a hero. And there's this great kind of, there's this really wonderful five minute montage at the end that kind of shows where everyone is set to the Florence and the Machine song, Dog Days Are Over, which was definitely emotionally manipulating me in a positive way. <laughs> and, uh, and we see Gamora and when she returns to the Ravages, we get this great like 30 second thing of this is her found family and this version of the world, right. she fits in here it's not the guardians it's with the ravages and they're hugging her and they're like do it giving her you know they're rubbing their fists on their head and it's just it feels really great and i love to not see them try and pull some kind of fate romance kind of thing weird it would have felt really weird and it was it, it was nice to have to to your point this kind of parting where it's like Peter really wants it to happen, but it doesn't. And he f- makes his peace with it. Mm-hmm. And it just feels very earned and natural. And honestly, with Gamora returning to the Ravagers, I have to, I feel like she will hear the horns of freedom when she dies. She the will. Colors of, the colors of a gourd? The colors of a gourd absolutely will flash over her grave. Shouts to Gamora. I, I, <laughs> I found this, again, I found this, I thought visually it looks great for any of the people who were disappointed by the kind of CGI um, tone palette and aesthetic texture of uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. This is much cleaner. and it has, a di- it has a very clear vision and it's a very colorful, pulpy, engaging, immersive vision. It fits very well into that world of Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a Guardians movie. The creature work is unbelievable. Yes, the creature and, work's unparalleled in and, the MCU. 
the High Evolutionary is certainly one of the most evil characters and the most effective villains that we've seen. I'll say this about the animal experimentation stuff, which again, it's going to be hard for some people to palate. I, I think one of the things that Marvel has struggled with in the post-Endgame phases is stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've kind of fallen back on stuff like Oh, my daughter. Oh, my family. Uh, oh, this flashback of this thing that happened. This, uh, you know, uh, Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness was like this romance that like with Christine that like never really got off the ground anyway when they were together. <laughs> and so I do respect that they went to a place that we hadn't seen before to create the stakes mm-hmm. to make you hate the villain. But yeah. it is something that will be, I think, hard for people who love animals and kids to watch. Yeah, my biggest, I have very complex feelings about the whole movie, but my biggest kind of takeaway is that I I love that we live in a world where a movie this weird can be it's seen as so a commercial weird. movie. It yeah. is extremely weird. It swings for the fences. For me, some of that stuff lands. For me, some of it doesn't. But this is a movie about a talking tree, a talking raccoon, aliens and they're fighting their way through organic space stations to save human animal hybrids and it's probably going to be one of the biggest movies of the year and that is the power of comic books to me and comic book storytelling and that's the thing that still makes me excited about these movies and the potential that they have i mean you mentioned the space hog drop where they're kind of floating towards org corp there are lots of moments like this where for no reason at all other than James Gunn is in his bag mm-hmm. tying up a movie. He'll give you a slow-mo shot or a 360 camera angle or this this uh, shot that like lingers on the characters' faces or the weird way they float through space. And there are mo- there are many of these that don't necessarily need to be there and if they do kind of need to be there, they certainly don't need to be that long. Mm-hmm. But the weight of all those things makes it such a unique visual experience. And those were some of my favorite things. Those those were some of my favorite things. Those moments where you linger, where you give the time to the atmosphere, to the vibe, to the character, to the story. That's the stuff that makes this really hit. So what do you think? Star-Lord TV show? Is that what they're going to do? It feels to me. Legendary Star-Lord. You know what they're going to do? He's going to, he's, is he going to be Captain America? Is he not <laughs> Captain America? No, but I'm dead serious. Is he I the fucking cry. leader of the Avengers team? You know what? They're doing a. They're going to need a Cosmic Avengers. I will say he will be on the Avengers team. He will I be on the next Avengers. I think you can take that. Look, the truth is, we're going to need a Cosmic Avengers because he knows about celestials. He lived in a celestial head. Whatever yeah. happens next, there's going to be a lot of cosmic multiversal shenanigans. So having somebody who has connections to the celestials, the Eternals know that stuff in a creepily oversight type fashion. So I'm sure that they were probably aware that somebody on Earth is part celestial, you know? So I think you're right. I think a legendary Star-Lord type appearance in the Avengers team as a leader or co-leader of, I think there will be many Avengers teams as we lead into this next phase. Right. Space team, earth team. I think that's very likely. I also do think the legendary Star-Lord, I think that sounds like a Disney plus show and you do it where he's going around the galaxy, kind of having very guardians esque fun. 
but we'll have to wait and see because I don't know. I think that people who really love these movies, they love James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy. So what does that look like without him? Well, I can't wait to see. That has been our coverage of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the end of this iteration of the team and certainly the end of James Gunn's uh, relationship with the MCU, although it certainly seems like uh, James Gunn's brother uh, will continue for a while, seeing as how Craglin is on the team. Yeah. Right? I think so. That's and fine, also, right? Yeah, like these, the truth is that actors exist in both these worlds, Marvel, DC, otherwise yeah. as well. And I think that will continue. And with James at DC and James having such a deep history at Marvel and these movies in general, not necessarily becoming the billion dollar blockbusters that the corporations want them to be, we're not far away from a Marvel DC crossover. Agreed. And James is somebody who I think would be very interested in that. Up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, or a theory that you're excited to share, Tony shares a Star Wars theory. Tony writes us, I can nerd out about a great many things, but Star Wars and the Marvel Universe, comics and movies, are near the top of my list. Long story short, my Star Wars fan theory is that the downed Star Destroyer we see at the beginning of The Force Awakens is Thrawn's Chimera, or Chimera 2, if the bird will completely dun, destroy dun. the ship. Da, da, da. I think that the climax of Dave Filoni's movie, this is good, that is the, itself the culmination of the Star Wars streaming shows to this point, will be the Battle of Jakku. I would which, love to see it! Which we don't see, but happens, you know, uh, before we catch up with the events of The Force Awakens. Um Dave Filoni's saga has run in parallel with the cinematic saga to this point, telling its own story, but referring at strategic times to the larger rebellion. And this event offers a great opportunity to do both. We will see all of our streaming heroes come together, including a full-on live-action Rebels reunion, complete with Freddie Prince Jr. as Kanan's Force Ghost. Oh, my God. People really want to see it. They I, really want to see it. Yeah, and you know what? He looks good. Like, I think He's looking Freddie, good. Freddie could do it. Uh, I theorize that we will also see other members of the Dameron family, more CGI Luke, Kelleron Beck, and Lizzo with a blaster. I, I would love to see it. Uh, yes. I hope that there's an appearance by the young Vice Admiral Holdo. They will all come together in an Avengers Endgame-style galactic extravaganza. Thanks for an extremely entertaining podcast. And may the Force be. Thank you. May the Force be may with you. May the Force you. be with you. It's May 3rd today, uh, but, you know, uh, one day early. May the Force be with you. I'll say this. We understand, certainly there have been rumblings that Star Wars, you know, the, the Star Wars IP world and Kathleen Kennedy want to do some kind of team up. They've been hunting mm -hmm. for a team up thing. And I love this. I, I think, think this great. would be such a cool way to do it. And I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine because we live in a post MCU world, a world where the MCU exists and kind of changed Hollywood. But I mean, a Star Wars event movie Star Wars movies used to be the event movie. So doing yeah. a Star Wars event movie, you could be making the biggest movie on Earth, especially with how much people love the TV shows and the movies and to bring all of that together. I think this idea sounds really cool. Tony, keep this one in your pocket. Pitch it. Pitch it to, pitch it to Lucasfilm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tony. If you have theories or passions you want to share, hit us up. X-ray at crooked.com. Instructions in the show notes. That's it for us, Rosie. Any plugs? I will be at Jeffrey's Comics in the LA area, specifically Torrance, one of my favorite places in the whole of America. 
I will be there with so many other cool artists on free comic book day. You can come and get free comics. And if you are not in our area, your comic book shop will have free comics. It is the rule of free comic book day, May 6th. You can go there, you can grab comics. Maybe they'll, you could give some donations of some food. Lots of different shops do it different ways, but you'll be able to get free comics. And if you come to Jeffrey's, I will be there signing things. I'll have some new zines that I'm making to prep you actually for Guardians of the Galaxy. I'll have some fun new zines about some of the characters and their comic book history that will be free. I will also have Godzilla stuff that you can buy. It will be rad. And I will again say check out the Hero Initiative because they do a lot of amazing stuff for the creators who made these characters possible and made this whole world possible and made the state of Hollywood today possible. So check out the Hero Initiative and support it where you can. I will plug the WGA, the Writers Guild yes. of America. We're currently on strike uh, against the alliance of uh, television and motion picture producers. Uh, here's the thing. These corporations are enormously po- profitable, enormous profits. The CEOs, the eight CEOs of these corporations altogether made like more than – uh, three quarters of a billion dollars, eight hundred million dollar range. Which, if you're uh, if you're scoring at home, is more than the two percent raise that writers are asking for. And there are various other problems. I won't I won't bore with you with them. All of which is to say, um, these studios sell one thing, and that is the stories that mm-hmm. writers write. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're at a stage now where writers. If if my only job was writing for TV, I would not be able to be living. It would be exactly. very very tough uh, because listen, you might make uh, you might make a good rate on a weekly basis, but you might only do eight or ten weeks of a mini room and then not be able to find anything for three months, four months, six months, eight months, a year because it's getting harder and harder and the we talked a lot and joked a lot about the gig economy on this podcast, but the studios basically want to create a world in which uh, writing for TV is a gig economy. They'll pay you by the day. Uh, they'll have uh, AI kind of uh, create the outline and, and then maybe they'll like hire a couple of kids like on a day rate to punch mm-hmm. it up, whatever the computer created. Uh, and then they'll put that out as cheaply as possible so that the CEOs could continue to uh, garner their enormous, enormous, enormous paychecks. Uh, and so that they can serve not the not the interests of the people who consume stories or the people who create the stories, but the shareholders. Again, mm-hmm. these com- these corporations are seeing enormous profits. So but much But because money. the profits aren't the kind of profits that scale at the level that Wall Street likes, all of this is seen as a failure. David Zaslav pulled in some $300 million uh, last year, and this is for – the, you know, basically shepherding uh, discovery into buying a thing that it can't afford, which resulted in numerous layoffs, and we're seeing layoffs me- all me- around the space. Billions of dollars of debt. So support your WGA writers, support writers, uh, post about them. If you see uh, posts from writers on any of your social media platforms, give them your support. They would they would appreciate that. If you do want to be bored. My stories on my Instagram are a source of constant WGA information. (laughs) I have many links to many stories, many different posts, places where you can go and pick it with our friends in the WGA. So 
if you want to be bored by it, Rosie Marks, my stories, that's what I'm using them for at the moment is just to share the stories of writers, the realities of what this is like, because even this job wouldn't exist for us if people didn't write these stories. That's right. That's very correct. Catch the next episode on Wednesday, May 10th for more market moves and a return to the wilderness <laughs> with Yellow Jackets on the Beleaguered Showtime Network. You are not ready for that one. And you can also subscribe on YouTube, where you can now watch full episodes of the show. Sometimes we are here on Zoom. Sometimes we are in the fancy studio. You can follow us at XRVPod on Twitter, where we share all kinds of cool things, and you'll get to keep up with the podcast. And check out our Discord. You can join by going to the show notes, hang out with a ton of amazing fans and listeners who talk about all kinds of cool stuff in very in-depth ways. And me and Jason show up there sometimes. Five-star ratings, five-star reviews. We need them. We got to have them. You got to give them to us. Here's one from Allison Gower. Absolutely awesome. It's so fun to listen to. It's a great way to bond with my teen son, who, like me, is a huge comic Marvel DC fan. We listen together, and he often stops you to explain more to me. No notes. Love you. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Allison. And shouts to your wonderful son. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroot provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time, folks. Bye. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.